0: You would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter five. This summer we are studying the Beatitudes which are found at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount consists of Matthew chapter five, Matthew Chapter six, and chapter seven. And these are the first words that Jesus speaks in this sermon. Last week, week we looked at the first of these, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this week, we're going to consider the second, blessed are those who mourn. Before we look at it, let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today. We ask in his name. Amen. I'm going to read Matthew Chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. who were before you the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our god stands forever blessed are those who mourn how does that work we remember blessed means happy carefree i told you my favorite definition i found Consciously knowing that your great joys and satisfactions are being fulfilled. That's what it means to be blessed. I am aware that my great joys and satisfactions are being fulfilled. It's wonderful. And then mourning means to lament, to grieve, to bewail. When I hear of mourning, I think of Job. Job finds out in a matter of minutes that he's lost his livestock, his servants have been killed, and a windstorm has caused his house to collapse and kill his children. And then Satan strikes him with sores all over his body. And we see Job tear his robe, shave his head, sit in ashes, and silently scrape himself with a piece of broken pottery. I'd imagine that's what most of us think of when we think of mourning. So how is that blessed? It seems like the exact opposite. It seems like you're being cursed. You've got these two things that appear to be in conflict with each other, blessedness and mourning. What does the Lord Jesus mean when he teaches, blessed are those who mourn? Well, to get a sense of this, we have to tie it back to our beatitude from last week. Jesus began this sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poverty he was talking about is not material poverty. It's not financial poverty. It's not being unable to afford your light bill. It is spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who recognize that spiritually speaking, they must have help outside of themselves. Blessed are those who realize that they are fully Dependent upon the grace and mercy of another. I.e., our Heavenly Father. Blessed are those who realize that they are not spiritual titans, but beggars. As Thomas Watson said, living on the alms of free grace. That's how this begins. That's how the Sermon on the Mount Begins. And in that context, our Lord speaking of spiritual poverty, he continues by talking about those who mourn. What are they mourning? Now, we would instantly kind of think of, well, something like Job's situation, a loss of wealth, loss of a loved one. We mourn our spiritual poverty. What is that? It's sin. We are to mourn the existence of sin. We mourn our own sin. We mourn the sin of others. We mourn the effects that sin has had on this world. Just as our Lord spoke of those who are spiritually impoverished, he continues by describing those who spiritually mourn. You know, as we work our way through the Beatitudes... Everything the Lord is going to list off is spiritual in nature. Now, some some of that is easier to grasp. It's more obvious. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. These are all spiritual in nature. The Lord Jesus is describing the spiritual condition and attitude of the believer. These Beatitudes are markers of the soul that follows the Lord Jesus. And he says that the one who is spiritually impoverished will mourn that impoverishment, that poverty. They mourn their sin. You remember the illustration we talked about from Luke 18? Jesus tells the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector who go into the temple to pray. And the tax collector stands far off. He does not even look to heaven. He beat his breast and cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is spiritual mourning. The tax collector isn't happy about his sin. He isn't pleased with his sin. He isn't content or comfortable with it. It grieves him. He doesn't confess his guilt with a smile on his face. He isn't nonchalant or unconcerned about robbing and defrauding his neighbors. He's not going to the temple and asking that his lifestyle just be celebrated and affirmed that he would be accepted for who he is. Now he is lamenting the evil he has done. I also quoted Charles Wesley's hymn Jesus lover of my soul last week. And that one line that says just and holy is thy name I am all unrighteousness vile and full of sin I am thou art full of truth and grace We aren't happy over the truth that we are all unrighteousness. We should mourn it. It is no small thing that we are vile and full of sin. It should bring us to grief. What do you think was King David's disposition when he wrote the 51st Psalm? I think it was smiling and chipper. Do you think he was calm and unconcerned when he wrote these words? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever- Before me, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What do you think King David's face looked like when he was writing those words? He's grieved over his sin. That's what we're talking about today. Being struck with the reality of sin. Both in our lives and in the world around us. And then mourning that sin and longing for our merciful God to forgive and heal. Blessed are those who see and mourn their spiritual poverty. How does that happen? Holy Spirit. He works. He peels back those layers of our soul and confronts us with the hidden evils of our heart. And we're brought to grief. He opens our eyes and we honestly examine ourselves. Not comparing our lives to others in an attempt to make ourselves feel better, we compare our lives to God's holy standard of righteousness. We compare ourselves to God's law. We can compare ourselves to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is going to give. And we see our inability to keep it. And we grieve. We think about things we've done in the past. Things we've said. Things we've thought. And we're struck with sorrow sorrow that we did them sorrow that we're even capable of them we're struck with grief knowing that we're capable of doing and saying and thinking such things we're horrified that the deeds or uh, no, not the deeds horrified that the seeds of those sins reside deep within us person who mourns is like Paul in Romans 7 who says in the midst of spiritual grief I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate I know that nothing good dwells in me I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out for I do not do the good I won't, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How many times have we thought the same thing? Our sin brings us to grief. The sin we named just a moment ago in our time of confession I trust it brings you to grief that we come to the Lord and we say my impatience my lack of self-control my arrogance my selfishness my dishonesty my discontent my unbelief and ingratitude towards my creator grieves me. This war raging within me between the flesh and the spirit grieves me. That's the picture of spiritual mourning. The brother of our Lord wrote in James 4, 8 through 10. Draw near to God. God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We grieve over our own sin, but that's not all. We also grieve over the sins of others. This does not make us busybodies. It does not make us judgmental. We are to mourn the sins of others. In Psalm 119, verse 136, the psalmist wrote, My eyes shed streams of tears. Because people do not keep your law. I weep because people don't keep your law. Who is included in that? People. Our family. Our spouse. Our parents. Our children. Our grandparents. We see family sin. Very clearly, don't we, up close and personal in ways that others do not. And we mourn over it. We grieve the sin of our neighbors and our countrymen. Jesus does this as he weeps over Jerusalem in Luke 19. He looks out over the city knowing that it would reject him. And in the end, judgment would fall on that city. The Romans would come and destroy it. And he wept. Paul, at the very beginning of Romans 9, is talking about his fellow Jews and he is lamenting their unbelief and rejection of Christ. And he writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. Paul is saying, if only they would believe, I would take their place. I would be accursed. I would be anathema. Cut off from Christ, if only they would believe. But their rejection of the Messiah brought him great sorrow and anguish in his heart. We grieve the sins that are ubiquitous in our society. We grieve the perversions, the injustices, the blasphemous ways in which our culture thinks and speaks about God Almighty and our Lord. We grieve the apathy and indifference that our society feels towards the gospel. What's your reaction when you read the news? A couple current examples. You think about the war in Ukraine and another horrifying story comes out about some atrocity. Or you read about The deaths of those children and teachers in Uvalde, Texas. And that loss of life. What's your reaction? Is it only disgust and anger? Is it only wishing that we or someone else could have done something or will do something to prevent such things from ever happening again? As believers... We are to recognize those instances for what they are, sin, and we are to mourn them. A holy grief should follow hearing such news as we mourn the sins of others and mourn the pain that those sins are causing and long for the day when that which is wrong will be made right. We mourn that sin even exists in the first place. We grieve the disaster that has befallen humanity. And in all of creation because of the rebellion of our first parents that they chose to listen to Satan and disobey the word of God. We grieve because sin has made this world unhealthy and unhappy. Think of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, John eleven thirty five 35. Shortest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? He knew he could raise Lazarus. He knew he would raise Lazarus. He would call and Lazarus would walk out of the tomb. He was weeping because he was confronted with death. This unnatural Horrible thing which is a consequence of sin. He was reminded of the havoc sin has wrecked on his creation, bringing about death and making life unhappy. Creation groaning, wanting to be made new. He wept because of the disaster that sin has brought into the world. And he specially knew. In a way that we do not. He knew what sin means to God and how God abhors it and hates it. And it made him weep. We mourn over our sins. We mourn over the sins of others, national sins, sins we read about in the news. And if that's where this verse ended, we would all go home this afternoon hopeless and depressed. But there is a second half to this verse. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Here's where you can start smiling. Here's where you can begin smiling in the midst of tears. Here is a promise to the people of God, to those who mourn, their spiritual poverty, they shall be comforted. There's a couple biblical principles for us to get. Number one, mourning always precedes comfort. It's mourning, then comfort. You see this over and over again in the scripture. Explicitly in places like Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. Psalm uh, Psalm 30. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Even the example of the Lord Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. The cheap stuff is served first, but the top-shelf wine is saved for the end. Morning always precedes comfort. And if we would know this comfort, we must first know morning. I'm going to quote Thomas Watson a lot here at the end, I think three times. Uh, I'm getting this from his exposition on the Beatitudes. And he writes this, quote, God keeps his best wine till last. First he prescribes mourning for sin, then sets out the wine of consolation. The devil does quite contrary. He, the devil, shows the best first and keeps the worst till last. Still talking about Satan. Satan. First he shows the wine sparkling in the glass, then comes the bite of the serpent. Satan sets his dainty dishes before men. He presents sin to them, colored with beauty, sweetened with pleasure, silvered with profit, and then afterwards the sad reckoning is brought. Sin has so many followers because it shows the best first but he continues saying but god shows the worst first first he prescribes a bitter portion and then brings the cordial End quote. i think we've all seen that we've been burned by the lies of satan we've experienced the way The enemy of our souls operates as opposed to the way our Lord operates. Satan promises the best first, but inevitably comes the bitterness. you have got the famous example of the father instructing his son in Proverbs 5. And he says, son, her lips drip with honey but her feet go down to death. That's Satan's way. God's way is different. There's mourning, then comfort. Joy, then sorrow. The dark of night before the dawn and rising of the sun. Holy mourning comes before holy comfort. And the second little principle to note is that it is also the means to holy comfort. It's how we get there. We don't just mourn to mourn. We mourn because it's a remedy. It is a spiritual medication. You don't have to be a doc to understand this. Another Thomas Watson quote. He says, quote, Mourning is not prescribed for itself but that it may lead on to something else, that it may lay a train for comfort. Holy mourning is a spiritual medicine. And then he reminds us of what we all know. He says, now a medicine is not prescribed for itself, but for the sake of health. So gospel mourning is appointed for this very end. To bring forth joy. End quote. Not only does mourning precede comfort, it lays the ground for the comfort that follows. It is the spiritual medicine. I'm sure there are some people in the world who just take medicine because they like taking medicine. But in general, the reason we take medicine is so that we might regain our health. And it's the same with mourning over our sin. God has so ordained that in mourning over our sin, we might be brought to comfort and joy and happiness. This bitter pill leads to our health. And because of this, the Lord can look at his disciples and say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Apostle Paul writes of this in his second letter to the church in Corinth. How spiritual mourning leads to spiritual health. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. He says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into Repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Just want to repeat that last verse. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, Whereas worldly grief produces death. Mourning, then comfort. Medication to health. Godly grief over sin, then repentance and salvation. We need to keep those in mind when talking about this comfort. But we can't discuss this blessed comfort without talking about the Holy Spirit. And his work in the life of the believer. It seems relevant to point out that the Lord Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as parakletos in John 14. Now that word in my Bible is translated as helper. You could also translate it as advocate, consoler, or comforter. the work of the Holy Spirit then isn't just to open our eyes and show us the hidden evils of our heart. He is also for the believer, the comforter. As Christians, we know that the Lord Jesus purchased peace for us by dying in our place as an atonement for sin. He purchased peace for us by his blood. We know this because of the work of the Spirit. Christ purchased peace. The Holy Spirit applies that peace. He speaks this peace to us. In Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit speaks to us that satisfaction has been made for these sins we are grieving. Satisfaction has been made. The debt has been paid. He whispers to us, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. He is the comforter. And the comfort he brings, the comfort the believer possesses is unmixed. In as opposed to the unbeliever. Uh, the unbeliever may have joy, but that joy is tainted with gnawing guilt. Happiness. Uh, underlaid with a nagging conscience. Proverbs 14:13 says, even in laughter the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. That's the case of the unbeliever. They ha- may have a smile on their face, but also have a chafing conscience. Their comfort is gnawed by guilt. They're like a person who is spending and spending and enjoying the purchases and deeply in debt, yet they are constantly worried that the debts are going to be called in. And unable to afford it, they'll be arrested. Not so with the comfort the Holy Spirit works. The comfort of the believer is not mixed with guilt or fear. We know that we are reconciled Forgiven, that even though we're a prodigal, our God is the loving Father who runs to us and clothes us and puts a ring on our finger and welcomes us home. Speaking of welcoming us home, the comfort that our Lord promises us not only comes from thinking about the past, what he has done on our behalf. And it's not only in the present of how our Heavenly Father sees us now, but it also comes by looking ahead to the future, to the blessed hope we have in Christ, a joy that comes from anticipating the eternal state, that there is a glory coming, That we are bound for a promised land where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. That our Lord who rose from the grave and ascended into heaven will return. And when he does, sin will be banished from this world. And we will live in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Psalm 1611 says, in God's presence is fullness of joy. There's comfort in remembering the promise that one day, someday, we will be completely, perfectly, fully blessed. Sorrow and sighing will be no more. All tears will be wiped away and we will bask forever in the eternal sunshine of the presence of our Lord. One final Thomas Watson quote and we're done. Consider how this may be an antidote to keep the hearts of God's people from fainting. They shall be comforted. They shall sit with Christ upon the throne and sit down with him at the table. The marriage supper will make amends for the valley of tears. O saint of God, you who are now watering your plants and weeping bitterly for sin, at this last and great feast, your water shall be turned into wine. You who are mortifying your corruptions shall shortly sup with Christ and angels. Oh, feed and delight upon the thoughts of this marriage supper. After your funeral begins your festival, long for supper time. Christ has paid for this supper. And there is no fear of a reckoning to be brought in. For this reason, comfort one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you do your work of salvation in our hearts? Expose to us the sin the hidden evils that resides there. Bring us to a place where we would mourn over these sins. Not dismiss them or excuse them or ignore them. But in an honest examination, we would confess them own them, and grieve them. And not only our sins, but the sins of others. Father, I pray that this would produce within us a neediness for you. That it would create in us a soul that can truly say that your grace is amazing. Would it create within us a longing not only for your forgiveness and reconciliation, but longing for a day when this sin will be no more? Longing for our forever home in which no accursed thing will ever enter? When we will be made perfectly holy and experience fullness of joy? In your presence forever. There is comfort you promise to your grieving people. Promise that you save the best for last. Father, help us to persevere and run this race before us. Tread our way through this valley of darkness and tears, knowing that we are not alone. That through the fire and the water, you will bring us safely because you are our God and we are your people. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.